there's this very offensively oriented information war that goes on digitally. Everybody's trying to you put ideas in other people's heads. Dude, it's so true. I'm guilty of it. Yeah, this is <laughs> like, you're, yeah, you're like, very yeah. offensive in this way. All right, everybody, what's going on? This is the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. This episode is one in a whole series all about Urbit. Urbit is a whole new computing and networking paradigm that many of you know I've become very interested in in recent months, really recent years, the past couple of years or so. I think Urbit is just way crazier and way cooler than most people realize. I think a lot of people are sleeping on Urbit and just don't really know about what's going on with it, what it is, and all the cool, badass people building Urbit, building things on Urbit, creating on Urbit. And so now the development of the technology is really picking up and moving faster. I decided that when the Urbit annual conference came to town in Austin this past October, that I would sit down with 10 different people all across the network, people who are building the technology, people who are creating on the network, and people just in this culture that still I think a lot of people don't know much about. So I can honestly say this was one of the most interesting experiences I ever had at any kind of conference, to be perfectly honest. I spoke with CEOs. I spoke with engineers. I spoke with e-girls from Weird Theory Twitter. Like, I'm not talking about Instagram chicks. I'm talking about, like, Weird Theory girls in, you know, the other life neck of the woods of of the, the Twitterverse and the blogosphere. I talked with skitzed out writers and post-everything podcasters. And very possibly, I spoke even with an alien. Uh, I'm only half kidding. It was just wild, man. It was really, really wild. A really, really interesting set of characters you're about to meet over the next 10 episodes. And I'm just super pumped to bring this series out into the world. So real quick, before I forget, I do want to let you know if you're interested in Urbit, it's now easier than ever to get onto the network. So I actually have a bunch of Urbit planets, aka Urbit ships, pretty much uh, computers in the cloud, an individual computer in the cloud that can be yours. It also functions as your identity, and it's what you use to log onto the network and to use Urbit. So if you want to, I'll give you one. Uh, I have a bunch, and any listener of the show, I want to get you on Urbit. So um, you can just go to imperceptible.computer. I made a whole site just for this purpose. And yeah, drop your email and uh, I will get you a planet, aka an Urbit ship. All right. Um, depending on whether you're listening to this now or two years from now, uh, there may or may not be some kind of uh, modest fee associated with it. Uh, right now, I'm just giving them out for free. You don't need to have any coding or programming skills or experience whatsoever. It's very straightforward. I will give you your own planet and you'll be on the network playing around talking to people in five minutes, probably. Okay. That's imperceptible.computer. I will put a link in the show notes. And I'll, I will put a link in the show notes to the Dalton Collective. All right. That's all from me. Let me get out of the way and on to the show. All right, Ted, what's going on, man? A lot's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's been a pretty eventful few weeks. Yeah. We're at the end of the conference now. You're my final victim. Mm-hmm. And you were actually on the podcast, what, two or three years ago now? Yeah. I think it was a little over two years ago. Yeah. yeah okay. And that was the first discussion we ever had on my podcast about Urbit. Mm-hmm. And so now here we are more than two years later. Yeah. How are you feeling about Urbit? What's, you know, what's in the air for you at the moment with the conference? It was incredibly exciting. We learned about so many interesting things going on in the Urbit ecosystem. Just kind of real quick to kick things off. How are you feeling? What are you seeing? What does the Urbit situation look like or feel like to you right now? I'm feeling great. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I've been, I've loved Urbit for many years. Um, I joined Talon in 2017, a little over four years ago. And at the time I was the sixth employee. I mean, there had been some before me, but you know, the team was six people. Uh, we were in like a little basement in San Francisco. Um, and 
to the extent anybody cared about us, it was like all negative. <laughs> and, like, and, and it was, and basically nobody did. Right. Right. I mean, at least that's how it felt. Interesting. Um, and so it really felt at the time like, okay, you know, I'm going to basically just, you know, I could have a nice career, but I'd rather just do this instead. <laughs> um, because I think it's important. Um, but then since then, uh, Urban has gone from this thing that crashes all the time and like there are, you know, 25 people in the network or whatever is a little more, but there are basically like 25 active people. I knew all of them. Now there are, I don't know, many thousands of people on the network. Uh, and not only that, but as of recently, like really recently, there are multiple corporations working on Urbit, like working on applications of Urbit, um, and a lot more sort of cultural interest in it. Um, I mean, that was evident from the conference, right? There were all these people here that were like, they were you know, fashionable uh, you know, who are seemingly like kind of plugged into culture more largely. And who you folks largely don't know in any way, really, right? It's like organic yeah. others coming in. Yeah, that, it's like, okay, that's <laughs> yeah. cool. Like, yeah. yeah, good to see these people. Um, and also just, um, I think the, yeah, the like level of interest from uh, you people who own galaxies and they're sort of investors and uh, people who are, just interested in like the future of technology and uh, kind of plugged into that world are, are now a lot more of them are, have heard of Urbit or thinking about Urbit are starting to understand it more and understand its importance. Uh, so it feels fantastic. Yeah, I bet it does. I mean, really rewarding. As someone who's been interested in Urbit for much, you know, less long than you, uh, even I, it feels very different now. It feels like right. there's a notable, palpable uh, inflection point going on with just around the energy and the yeah. interest and it's it's really fascinating and really exciting so yeah i'm super pumped on this weekend and you are one of the people you're one of the few people really who have kind of all of urban in your head you're you're a senior engineer at Tlon. you've been as, working on this stuff for ages as you said and so while we have you here i really want to go deep on some of the technical issues that urban yeah. faces especially thinking about all the other engineers out there and developers out there who maybe have certain critiques of Urbit or have certain misconceptions about Urbit. I want to kind of steel man some of the arguments, I think in your case, especially around scaling, because I know that's something that you are focused on. Yep. And so I want to talk a little bit about that technically and help people understand the the challenges there, but also the solutions that the, the team sees for Urbit uh, in the near future. But before that, I want to also talk about the relationship between Urbit and blockchains, because I know this is something you've given a lot of thought to. Obviously, blockchains are very hot right now. People are paying a lot of attention to crypto and blockchains. And Urbit has some very interesting commonalities, but also some differences. Yeah. And I think you'd be an excellent person to talk about this with. So why don't we just start with what is the relationship between Urbit and blockchains? Is Urbit competing with blockchains? Is Urbit going to be the home of blockchains where, where blockchains are built on Urbit or a mix of all of these things? What at a very high level do you see as the the basic relationship between Urbit and blockchains? Yeah. So I see Urbit and blockchains as two complementary sides of a crypto world. Okay. So the whole crypto ecosystem. And so they're very much aligned, uh, but there's they're opposites in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and I was using the term categorical dual earlier, right? So yes. Urbit is sort of a categorical dual 
of a blockchain. I'm like waving my hands here. If you're a mathematician, please don't kill me. No, that's but, okay. Um, Let's unpack that. It's um, very fascinating. Yeah. So uh, they're like, they're very similar in most ways. And then they're opposite in like one really important way. Well, first of all, what is a category? You yeah. were talking before about what that means. And then what is a categorical dual first? Sure. And then we'll unpack how that applies. Okay. So a, uh, and it's going to be disappointing because it only applies vaguely, but uh, a, Category is a mathematical construct that where you have objects and morphisms and objects are just sort of like points uh, uh, where they're sort of like, you know, objects in a set. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a morphism is an arrow from one to another. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a category is you have some set of objects and morphisms between them. Mm -hmm. um, and a categorical dual of that category, which is also called the opposite category, is the same thing, except all the arrows go the other way. Right. So instead of pointing from A to B, you're pointing from B to A. Okay. Uh, and so it's a it's a useful concept for for thinking about okay, you have something you have sort of two different systems that are similar, but where the relation is inverted. Right. So structural similarity, mm -hmm. but opposite in terms of the the what is connected to what or what is or in or out of the set. Yeah. So just unpack it by going into the details of, of what you're referring to here. Like, so what yeah. are the objects in the blockchain set or category? Yeah. And then what are the objects in the Urbit set or category? Yeah. And, and how do those arrows flip? Yeah. And so this is why I'm like, not sure that it exactly fits, but no, basically fine. it's just the, a, yeah, a heuristic. You know? right. So they're both decentralized networks, right? Right. So blockchain is a decentralized network. You've got a bunch of people running nodes, right? right? So you've, you know, many thousands of people, a node is just a program that somebody's running and those nodes are all communicating with each other. Um, Urbit is also a decentralized network, thousands of people running nodes. Mm -hmm. Those nodes are communicating with one another. And the difference is that with a blockchain, everybody's coming to consensus on exactly one piece of data. Mm -hmm. And you add new pieces of data to it, right? You have a chain of blocks, so you're adding to the chain. But everybody agrees on exactly what that sequence is. Mm -hmm. um, so it's almost like each new piece of data is sort of this like a priori truth or something that gets added to the world you know, when it works right. Uh, and, um, I mean, I think this is actually a sort of fundamentally new idea that has never existed before. Um, and this is very powerful in a lot of ways. Sure. Of course, the immediate thing you can do is prevent double spends of money. Right. But, uh, but this sort of, you can, you can also just sort of build generic self-enforcing games or games with self-enforcing rules. So this is where there are lots of different chains, lots of different contracts, um, and, you know, this is sort of in contrast to uh, games where the rules are enforced by guys with guns, which is the traditional mm -hmm. means of enforcing. Things. Sure. Um, so very interesting. Uh, Urbit is similar, decentralized network, but the difference is that every Urbit produces its own data and it has complete control over its own data. That data doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the data of some other Urbit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a blockchain is public. Urbit is private. So it's like, so Urbit is sort of your own personal blockchain, mm. which, um, I mean, it sounds like horrible buzzwords, but uh, there's a funny thing where, you know, mathematically that's true. Uh, and also in terms of how it's implemented, it's true. So the Urbit virtual machine is almost exactly the same as a blockchain virtual machine. Mm. It works the same way. You do a, a one sequence of events. You write that each event to disk. And it's deterministic, so you can replay it and get the same thing. Right. Okay. Now, so with blockchains, everybody's doing that same sequence. 
with Urbit, each person has their own sequence. Okay, fascinating. So basically, breaking down how the the arrows invert. Yeah, Urbit is private. Blockchains are public. Yeah. With blockchains, you're basically forming a consensus, whereas in a way with Urbit, it's a system for dissensus in a way. Yeah. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. Because everyone has private computers. Your Urbit is your private computer, and anything can go on within those computers. Anything can be compu- computed and built or whatever. And really, the Urbit network is just allowing for these private machines to interact. Yeah. When they want to consense, they can. Yeah. But for the most part, it's like an architecture for many, many personal computers to go off in any number of different directions. That's right. But to stay in sync yep. when they want to be. Yeah. And so actually, Urbit's networking protocol is typically one-to-one, at least at the moment. I actually have plans for changing that. But um, to the general way it works is you know, my ship sends a message to your ship. Your ship sends me an acknowledgement. Uh, each of those is a transaction or an event. Uh, in blockchain world, they're called transactions. In Urbit, they're called event. It's the same thing. Uh, it's something that either happens atomically or it doesn't. Um, and so basically, in a way, when I send you a message on Urbit and then you acknowledge it, it's like we're forming a little consensus just between the two of us, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can also have a group in Urbit. And then you're basically forming a smaller consensus among that group. Now that a consensus is typically enforced by just having a hub and spoke model, which is basically what in the blockchain world, that would be called a proof of authority, uh, where the, the hub, so like the group host, the you know, host of the chat group or whatever, is sort of maintaining that logical sequence that everyone in the group is agreeing upon. So it's a sort of trivial form of consensus where it's like, well, what did that guy say? We'll go with that guy. Okay. Um, and you really don't want this for money, uh, but for chats, it's generally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the other thing is that with Urbit, you know, it's not just that like there's one chat host, which is a Facebook data center, right? Right. Like anybody can be a chat host. I'm a chat host for mul- or a group host mm-hmm. for multiple groups. Uh, you're a group host, right? It's a multipolar, multi-centric world. And so this is one of the things you can do with Urbit, right? Is like, because there's this sort of flat uh, fabric, decentralized fabric that you can build on, you can actually build little sort of somewhat centralized things on top of that. And there are many of them. So it's, right. but yeah, so there's always this trade-off between, you know, uh, the efficiency of centralization and the fairness of decentralization. And so you kind of have to do, mix those together differently depending on the application, right? So for money, yeah, public blockchain, one state, everybody agrees that like, that's your Bitcoin. That's not you know, like not somebody else's Bitcoin. Um, it'd be really nice if houses had this, right? So you don't have to pay title insurance. Right. Title insurance is a, is a hacky solution to the double spend problem. Right. Right. And once you see that, it's like uh, sort of ridiculous. Totally. Okay. So given this framework, which I think is very interesting and, and useful, how do you expect the development of Web3 to play out with respect to Urbit? Like what, what kinds of patterns or equilibria do you expect? Is, are, are the dominant blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum just going to be increasingly built around Urbit and on Urbit where the social layer takes place on Urbit, where people are messaging each other, sending each other money, uh, building DAOs? Is that all going to take place on Urbit and that's kind of the most interesting dimension? 
Or is there an even more fundamental level where Urbit is actually competing with blockchains? How do you think that through or or what kinds of frameworks do you have for thinking about that? Yeah. Uh, I use the framework that I was just discussing, actually, where, where you think about, okay, for each application, uh, what kind of dynamics do you want? Uh, and so for anything where you need everyone in the world to agree on a piece of data, use a blockchain. For everything else, use Urbit. Right. And so a lot of people tried to use Ethereum for things where you don't actually need everybody to agree. Right. Uh, and then it turns out that this is extremely expensive because now everybody in the world has to run the same thing and they have to compete with things that actually need to be public. Right. Uh, right. Ethereum transaction fees are ex just extremely expensive, right? It costs like, you know, hundred dollars to like, you know, change one field in the database. Right. I, I don't know exactly what it is, sure. but it's very expensive. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is that, well, yeah, that's what happens if you try to shoehorn all transactions into one com logical computer that's supposed to handle everything in the whole world. Now, there's some things where you want that, but if you don't need it, don't do that. Right. And so for with Urbit, it's like, yeah, there's no like central bottleneck, right? If I want to send you a chat message, that shouldn't have to like go through this blockchain and wait for everybody else. It's like an automated clearinghouse for the whole world. Right. right. So basically, blockchains have a tendency to get overused a little bit because people aren't building stuff on Urbit yet. Now, one of the features of blockchains, though, is this idea of single source of truth. You yeah. can timestamp things. You have yep. these uh, proofs of record, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's very exciting for for a lot of purposes. Does Can Urbit match that? In other words, if I'm doing something in a private group on Urbit, yeah. there is a, a way in which it's being timestamped and it's it's traceable. But yeah. does, it, does it have that kind of, um, the, the the same kind of power? That, that it would have if it was on the public blockchain? No, because uh, basically what you don't have there is like the ballast of like many thousands of nodes saying, Confirming yes, it. This, yeah. is the, this is the truth. Right. Now you may have a small set of nodes saying, yes, this is the truth. Or you might just have one. And for many cases, that's fine, right? Like right. I don't need the whole world to confirm that it was you who sent me a chat message, as long as I can confirm that cryptographically through authentication, right? right. So as long as when you send me this message, you sign it cryptographically with the key that's from your orbit. And so then I know it's fine. Right. And so there's, there's a sort of multi level, multi, many layers of, well, there are many layers uh, of interaction between urban and blockchain. So, you know, the ownership ledger and the public key infrastructure for urban that lives on Ethereum. Right. So that is a contract on Ethereum called Azimuth. Right. Um, and so we, lean on Ethereum to solve the double spend problem for Urbit assets. Yes. Uh, so that's on a blockchain. Right. And then on that blockchain, you can put in a networking key, public key, that your Urbit will use. Uh, and if you, if you own that asset, you can set the key. And that's basically what it means to own the asset. You can set the networking key that your Urbit will use to communicate with other Urbits. Right. And so as a result, um, you and I can both look at this global, right? So my ship and your ship can both read from this global public data to figure out, yes, you know, I am me, you are you. Right. And now we can communicate securely. Right. Um, and then one of the things that we can also do is, you know, have our ships, you know, collaborate on a multisig or on a DAO. Right. Right. On Ethereum. Right? So that's basically you have Ethereum underneath, you have Urbit in the middle, you have, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum above. Mm. Um, and these things actually just 
they, okay. they tie into each other right. very nicely. Right. So you have basically, because any interaction with a blockchain, you want to do in a sort of private manner, right? It's like, okay, yeah, I have my private key that I use for my account on a, some chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you and I have some sort of multi-sig that we want to collaborate on. We want to sign something together, right? So that's fundamentally private. So you want to use your Urbits to coordinate that, to like hold the, like, the references to on-chain data. And you want to use your Urbit ship to like send transactions to a blockchain, read off a blockchain, monitor a blockchain. You want to have like a trading bot would be great, okay. right? So think about like what you would need to do to build a trading bot that just like does trades on your behalf based on some triggers, right? right? Listening to listening to various chains, let's say doing you know, arbitraging between chains or something, right? Or having you have some program, right? Uh, normally, if you want to do that, it's sort of a non-trivial thing to do, right? Like because you need a personal server to do it. You have to have some server, some some program that's actually you know running all the time that you have control over. And Urbit is a personal server, right? And that's something that just doesn't really exist. Mm. So it's hard to build these things that individuals can use unless you're already a programmer. Uh, but if you're, but with Urbit, you know, it's a personal server operating system. Mm-hmm. So you can just install those things as apps. Okay. And yeah. so you just have to run this one Urbit server and we make that easy or try to make it easy. Yeah. Uh, and then once you have that, it's just as easy as installing an app and now you have a trading bot. Okay. Fascinating. So this is really starting to come into focus, I think. So you can imagine all different kinds of apps being pushed to, for instance, the new software distribution system that's now available and now operating where it's like you maybe plug in your, you know, maybe, maybe your blockchain identities and your portfolios or whatever. And you set rules like trade when this goes up, trade that or whatever. Precisely. And And this is the kind of app that Urbit would be perfect for yeah. providing because it gives you all of the benefits and all of the kind of philosophical attractions of blockchain technology, but doing it off chain, but interacting with the chain. Yeah. So the idea of Ethereum as the world's computer is actually pretty stupid because as you were saying, uh, it's just really not designed for that. Urbit in a way is competing with Ethereum to be the global computer. That actually makes sense in a way. Is yeah. that, okay, maybe I I'm mean, overreaching To some that. extent, yeah. because there are things that, Ethereum does a lot better, right? Right. Notably, it solves the double spend problem. And so for anything where you need to solve the double spend problem, where you need global consensus on some piece of data, yeah, you need a blockchain. But for actual computing, like shared computation, Urbit can do that for large numbers of people in a way where you're not paying all these crazy gas fees. You're not congesting this like public network. Right. Right. Yeah. So you can think of it as um, having better asymptotics, right? Better... So that, you know, the, the asymptotic performance, right? If you kind of like look at what does the curve look like of how much load can the system bear as a function or like, uh, you know, how much performance can the system have? How much, how fast can it go as a function of how much data you're throwing at it, mm-hmm. right? The asymptotics of Urbit are much better than for a blockchain because for a blockchain, it just kind of caps out where you get like, yeah, you, like Ethereum, I think is like everybody sharing the same, uh, you know, 1990s cell phone, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody's running that. And, you know, Solana is very advanced and you have like a, you know, 2000 cell phone or something, right? <laughs> I mean, like it's, uh, but yeah, so the asymptotics are wrong, right? Like it doesn't scale up with how many people, right? So, um, because everybody's running the same thing and some things you want everybody to run the same thing, but where you don't need that, it's incredibly costly. So, yeah, so there's this fundamental thing that blockchain just can't solve, which Urbit solves very naturally. And so, the, but I do think that they're two sides of the same coin. Okay. Right? Because they're both decentralized networks um, and they're both bearer assets. Mm-hmm. 
right? So they, and they both come out of the same sort of impulse, which is that there's a sort of, there's just a general kind of feeling that uh, a lot of power structures today are very corrupt. And the best way out of that is to give more power to each individual, more autonomy, more freedom, um, and more sort of ability to, yeah, to operate autonomously, have small groups that operate autonomously, both in just like social life, monetarily, in terms, you know, when you're sort of thinking about starting a company or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, Satoshi came at this from thinking, okay, how can we have money? How can we have a digital bearer asset? Um, where it's like, yeah, not your keys, not your coins. And with everybody, it's like, okay, you need a digital bearer asset for your identity and for your, your social identity mm-hmm. and for your computing itself. So uh, all of your accounts, basically like having actual control over those accounts. Um, so basically it's like, yeah, for money or for some certain kinds of contracts, you need a blockchain for everything else, use Urbit. And then you can, you know, run both of those from the same, you can own both of those through the same hardware wallet. Right. And they can interact however you want them to in a way. And that will be figured out just by the use case and what makes the most sense. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So that's really helpful. You once told me that Urbit is a defensive construct in the information war. Maybe you could unpack that. It's a fascinating statement. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so in, in my opinion, we live in a state of total information war. Uh, and I mean, there's like the meme, like always has been, right? uh, <laughs> which I, I think is basically true. And just in this, in the sense that everybody's trying to influence everyone else. Uh, but the intensity of this war has gotten really amped up since the internet, because now I can influence someone across the world instantaneously as an individual. And then organizations can use machine learning, you know, some people's digital footprints, behavioral analysis, um, and all kinds of other technologies that are relatively sophisticated for predicting behavior, influencing behavior, uh, gathering large-scale data about population dynamics, right? Like how people are thinking about things. Um, and so those are like largely offensive tools in the information war, and everybody uses them, right? Companies use them, governments use them, uh, celebrities use them, individual people use them when they can, right? Like, yeah, you know, an advertising platform where you're going to, okay, I'm going to advertise my site, right? I'm going to like use Google keywords. It's like, okay, they're like giving you like a, an RPG or something, yeah. right? Where like, yeah, you're like, yeah okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go put like ideas in these people's heads. I'm going to filter it by demographic, right? Like, um, and so there's this very offensively oriented information war that goes on mm-hmm. digitally. Everybody's trying to you put ideas in other people's heads. Dude, it's so true. I'm guilty of it. Yeah, this is <laughs> like, you're, yeah. Yeah, you're like, very yeah. offensive in this way. I mean, anyone who's active on the internet with like a real project trying yeah. to accomplish something, you're forced into this offensive posture. So what you're saying makes a ton of sense. It's true. Yeah. And so uh, you know, different periods in history are skewed more towards offense versus defense. Mm. Um, and uh, right, like if you, right, like in 1453, the Turks came in with cannons and blew away the walls of Constantinople, which had stood for a long time. Mm. Right. Uh, because it is the, 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 the landscape of warfare had shifted somewhat from defensive to offensive because of gunpowder. Mm. Right. Um, but sometimes it shifts back, uh, towards defensive. And so urban, I think is primarily defensive. Interesting. 
you know, things like Twitter where you can just like globally broadcast your ideas at everybody mm-hmm. really easily. Like, okay, that's primarily offensive. But with Urbit, an individual has more control over the incoming information flows. And small groups have more control over the incoming information flows. Now, it's, it's a marginal difference over something like Signal, right? Or Telegram where, okay, if you have end-to-end encrypted chatting and uh, file sharing, then you kind of have, you have a lot of individual sort of defensive control or, or sort of small group collective uh, information defense. Mm. Um, but what you don't have is the ability to coordinate on things like on anything involving programs. Right. Mm-hmm. So with Signal, I can't just like install a trading bot that we all collaborate on within, right. within a Signal group. Right. Right. We can't manage a multi-sig together. We can't. And it's not extensible. Right. We can't just like install new things that we want, build our own software that communicates this way. So this is what Urbit gives you is that as is any kind of group of people what that wants to operate autonomously, you can control which software you're running. You can run that together and nobody can take it away. Um, and so that's something that it's something that doesn't exist yet. And it's an important piece of what's coming next, basically. Dude, it's so fascinating to me that we don't even feel that as a lack in the current internet. Yeah. The idea that people should be able to build apps, share them, tinker with them together. And we don't even, we don't even feel like we're missing something. We've so naturalized the current state of things. Yeah, that learned helplessness. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think you put it very well, and I think it really conveys uh, the magical the magical promise of of Urbit. The fact that we can't do that is so weird because it yeah. shouldn't be that hard, you yeah. know. Um, okay, fascinating. So a defensive construct in the information war, mostly as a kind of uh, a bulwark against all of this offensive uh, bombardment that yeah. that the that the boomer web is is constantly throwing at us yeah exactly but now that there are applications that can be shared in the in the software distribution it might become more offensive is that fair to say i mean at at a certain point the groups that are building on urbit are going to start building operations that that start seeping out into the public world that start you know uh building things that do encroach upon the current status quo order yeah like you right like you're you are building your own group on urbit and that group will be publishing content. Right. And so publishing content, that's, yeah, that's offensive right. information. Work. Right. So to be clear, I don't think this is like morally positive or negative, right? right? It's just, it can be either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely fascinating. So that's great. So maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the common objections to Urbit, because like I said, you're one of the few people who have all of the Urbit system in your head. And I think you can deal with, with these objections at a very sophisticated level. So don't hold back on us. I want you to go, you know, full throttle on on the technical details. Right. Uh, don't have careful to, what you wish for, but yeah, yeah, no, no, you don't have to dumb it down for us. I mean, it might go over my head, but I want to really address, you know, the engineering crowd, and I have a lot of, you know, engineers in, in my audience. So, because you work on scaling, let's talk about that. A lot of people have the impression about Urbit that it's just too slow, that it's never really going to be able to grow into a truly global platform where you have billions of users sending packets to each other all over the place. Yeah. How do you think about that challenge? Yeah. And why don't we actually start by trying to steel man that? Like what, sure. what is, um, you know, the, the best representation of that critique of Urbit? And then we'll move on to unpacking it. Yeah. Okay. So I think the best critique is um, a sort of Jonathan Blow style critique 
okay. where he would say, I mean, he's sort of, this is a general critique that he applies to a lot of things and it does apply to Urbit, which is that, um, so Urbit's machine code, knock, uh, and the interpreter for that machine code does not max out the speed of a CPU, right? If you run knock, that's not as fast as running native machine code. It's not as fast by about a factor of maybe a thousand. Uh, so for reference, this is actually not that uncommon. Um, you know, Python, very common language used for server, server code, um, runs at maybe 200 times slower, roughly. It's complicated. You know, it's not sort of a flat across the board difference. Um, it really depends on what you're doing. But knock, not the fastest thing in the world. Um, and I think this is the, uh, the core of any real critique of the scaling capabilities of Urbit. Actually, there's one other one on the network side. But when it comes to just, you know, execution speed, it's really, you know, knock just can't crank up your CPU all the way. Okay. Or if it does, it, it's doing it inefficiently. Okay. So for certain kinds of applications, you can't run them in that way. And there's a, a deeper argument that economically, anything that can't max out the CPU is going to lose to something that can. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people say, okay, well, instead of writing Urbit in Knock, you should write it in WebAssembly, WASM, which can go almost at full speed and has a lot of the same benefits as Knock in terms of safety and um, uh, sort of universality. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the steel man of the argument. Okay. Mostly it's just that like, it's not going to win because it won't be able to go as fast as something else. Okay, great. So why are you not convinced by that? Or what do people who say that, what do they fail to see? I think what they fail to see is that computers are unbelievably mind bogglingly fast. Okay. So it doesn't matter if you're not maxing out the CPU? Yeah. Like, okay, you can go, let's say we, okay, so it does matter some. Knock as it is, not fast enough, okay. probably. No, it's fast enough for what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. Like, it's actually not a problem right now. Right. But if you scale it up by one or two orders of magnitude, it starts to become a problem. Okay. So 10 or 100 times more people on the network, more data going through, then it's a problem. It's occasionally a problem right now already. Okay. So... This is why we're thinking about scaling. We know we need to improve the performance. Um, and again, this is, I'm, I'm speaking mostly on the CPU side. There's also a networking component to this, which I can get into if you're interested. Okay. Um, but the, um, yeah, it's basically not a problem because, or long-term, uh, because you can make knock go a lot faster than it does. Uh, and it doesn't need to just completely, you know, scream with performance. Uh, most applications that people use do not use native code. They run in JavaScript. Hmm. JavaScript is also an interpreted language, just like Knock. Um, and when it first came out in the 90s, it was certainly not fast. What happened was there were browser wars. And in those browser wars, companies dumped a lot of money. I don't know exactly how much. I, I suspect it's in the billions, if not tens of billions of dollars, if you add it up over 30 years. Uh, you get companies like uh, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Google, Mozilla, all dumping money into making JavaScript go fast. And guess what? It goes pretty fast now. Right. So yeah, it doesn't completely max out the CPU, but it goes fast enough to run Gmail. It goes fast enough to run Facebook. It goes fast enough to run uh, all kinds of things. 
Okay. Um, and so almost all the applications, like most of the time you spend on your computer, you're running JavaScript. So if you took that amount of money that's been dumped into making JavaScript go fast, and instead you dump it into making Knock go fast, Knock will go a lot faster than JavaScript. Okay, fascinating. So when we imagine a billion u- users on Urbit using, let's say, the the the, tw- the Urbit version of Twitter, right? Yeah. Let's say that's in in full swing. There's a billion people using it. Yeah. At that point, you suspect it's going to go as fast and as smoothly as the current Twitter on the Boomer Web. Not exactly a high bar, but um, <laughs> yeah. the uh, oh, I mean, in a certain way, it is. They actually had to put a lot of resources into sure. that. Uh, but yeah, right. Like, and that and that's those speed gains relative to what Urbit currently is when you know because when you message it takes like a fair bit of time and there's a lot of like you know uh time that it takes it's not bad at all it's totally functional as you say um it's good for what it is it's fine for what it is right now but when you have a billion users who expect high speed and and yeah. this kind of instantaneous uh react reactiveness those speed gains between now and then are going to be gained by something like the browser wars taking place on Urbit, where resources and and developer hours are poured into optimizations on some layer yeah. above knock. No, actually the layer that runs knock. Okay. So maybe I'm on so, that. Oh yeah. So Urbit has sort of um two general components or Urbit OS. There's the runtime called Ver, named after Edward de Ver, who might have been Shakespeare. Um and uh so that's a program written in C that runs on Linux or Mac OS or Windows. Uh, and what that does is it runs knock. Okay. So that what's that's what runs your Urbit. It's called a virtual machine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit like running Parallels. So if you want to run like Windows on macOS, okay. Right. So you can run like Urbit on macOS. Got it. So it's a lot like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that. That's one component. That's the component that you need to optimize. What that does is it runs the Arvo kernel, like the Arvo operating system. So the Urbit OS, so all the stuff in Knock, right? So the apps and all those things, those are written in Hoon, they compile to Knock. Those are sort of within the Urbit system. Um, and all the, and so that's the other component. So those are basically, you write those as primarily as just a specification. Um, it's an executable specification, it's Knock, but like um, the, you don't wanna be doing optimizations at that layer primarily. You want to be doing optimizations of the knock runtime in general so that it can run any program quickly as opposed to have needing to make every program go fast. You always have to do a little bit of optimization, but you should only have to do that with the asymptotics uh, if you're doing it in knock. And okay. this is, in fact, what we what we find in practice. Um, but yeah, so basically you want to concentrate the optimization effort toward the knock interpreter, which then is the, the tide that lifts all ships, makes everything go faster. Okay. The other thing about scaling, though, uh, so if you want to have a billion users... The other thing you need is to be able to disseminate data widely and efficiently. Uh, so content distribution is another name for this, uh, right? You might've heard of a CDN and content distribution network. I think that's what this stands for. Um, but generally the idea of like, okay, um, yeah, you know, Kanye puts out a tweet and you want to have millions of people like see the tweet. Right. So it's have the same piece of data and it just needs to explode across the network. Right. So Urbit is not very well suited to this at the moment, hmm. but this is what you need. You, so you need that process to be efficient. You need the marginal cost of sending a piece of data to one more person to be really, really low mm-hmm. so that data can diffuse across the network fully, quickly, and cheaply. Um, this is actually a relatively unrelated problem to making not go fast. Okay. Fascinating. If we do it right. So the other thing about Urbit is like, it's a beautiful architecture. 
And if you do architecture right, then you can get a lot of performance gains, actually. Um, right. So one thing, one way of making things go fast is just strip out all the crap. Right. And just have it not do very much. And one of the cool things about it, when you really read the code and the kernel, after you've really kind of internalized it, you're like, oh, this basically doesn't do anything. <laughs> it, it, I, your yeah. just kind of sits there. Like right. the, the kernel does very little. It's almost, it's almost just a pass through little checks. And that's good. And this is how you know when, when you've kind of like gotten a component of Herbit right is when it's, it sort of fades away and doesn't do anything anymore. So what is the summary of how Herb, Herbit will be able to have Kanye's tweets go out to a billion people? Being able to disseminate the same piece of data to lots of different people is an almost entirely unrelated problem to making not go fast. And the reason is that uh, to handle the first request for this tweet, um, you know, Kanye's ship only has to uh, run knock once. Maybe that's relatively slow and it takes 10 milliseconds. Right. Right. 10 milliseconds is slow. And it's really good, roughly what it would take right now on Urban. But it's, that's a problem if you have to take 10 milliseconds to serve it to each person. Right. Because then it takes you know, millions of seconds or whatever, thousands of seconds to serve it to everybody. But what you actually want is for the runtime, Ver, to run that knock once. And then cache the result. So just hold it, hold on to it. And the next time somebody asks, you don't have to run knock at all. You're like, oh, I already know the answer to that question. So you have a bunch of bytes sitting in memory. And when somebody asks you for this request, you're like, okay, here are those bytes. <laughs> Shove them right out the door. This is something computers can do incredibly quickly. And it means that, uh, so, you know, a typical computer can have, uh, you know, like hundreds of thousands of open connections if you do it right to other computers. Uh, and so, yeah, at least maybe millions. Um, uh, this used to be called the C10K problem. You know, how many connections can you have to hold open? And then they had to make it to like the C100K and C1M, right? Like, yeah. uh, but it's shocking actually, like just how much data uh, one computer can send out. Uh, but you just have to not get in its way, right? So, okay, yeah, knock is slow. So don't run knock, run it once. And then the next, 10 million times, just take the same bytes and shove them out the door. Okay, fascinating. I think what you're talking about with the namespace, I think this will be very new to a lot of people. Like, yeah. like I don't think anyone knows that or has ever heard that necessarily. So yeah. it's fascinating. And, and I think people will find that that in, intriguing and compelling. Cool. Anything else on this topic that I'm not asking about, which I should ask about? Philip, I asked this question to Philip Monk. He made some references to caching, which I guess you were talking about. That, yeah. That's So you're kind of unpacking something he only talked about briefly, which is great. He there, also mentioned other, other forms of caching too, but yeah. There are other possibilities. He also talked a little bit about um, federation, but again, that kind of sounds like what you're saying in a way. I don't know if there mm -hmm. are, are there other competitor hypotheses for how scaling takes place. And this is, you're just talking about one, or is this kind of um, the, the, the main one that the team is aligned around? I think this is the main one, although it's still something we're exploring. So okay. It's possible that, you know, if you have me on again in a year or whatever, I'll give you a different answer. Right. But um, this is sort of the the main, yeah, it is the main hypothesis. Okay, great. Well, I th I, that was very compelling and I think that made a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit more about Urbit and blockchains because I do know there are some interesting projects going on right now. I don't know if they're stealth or secret or whatever. We don't need to go into the details, but I do believe there are projects to build blockchains on Urbit. Can you explain what that means, what that would look like, and and why, or or what's what's the reasoning there? Yeah, so I've heard about this some. Um, 
And my understanding is basically, is somewhat vague, but it's essentially that Urbit is a decentralized network full of nodes. Uh, and it provides a lot of really good primitives for building decentralized applications. One of those applications is a blockchain. And so you can build a blockchain on Urbit in various ways. Um, and I think the general idea is that you could get like a little bit of a benefit compared to proof of stake by doing a sort of proof of identity where because Urbit nodes are scarce, in addition to getting your stake slashed, if you do something wrong, you could also get your identity slashed where basically you, you, your node is no longer allowed to participate in the computation. Uh, I don't know the details of that really. Um, I don't know how well it would work, but abstractly speaking, I think it makes a lot of sense to me that you might want to run a blockchain on Urbit or maybe multiple because yeah, you have a nice decentralized network with really good primitives, right? Like, you know, natural traversal, peer-to-peer networking, peer discovery, encrypted communications, authenticated communications, determinism, a nice data model, algebraic data types, pure functional pro. I mean, it's like, Urbit is nice, right? right? And so it's nice for a lot of things. One of the things that might be nice for is a blockchain. And yeah, maybe you can get some added uh, security from the, the scarcity of the, of the uh, addresses. I see. Well, we did talk, though, before about how Urbit replicates some of the features of a blockchain. And we, we talked about how it sounds like the ideal arrangement would be use Urbit for certain things, use blockchains for others, but they yeah. play really nice together. So I'm trying to understand the, the advantage to building a blockchain on Urbit. It yeah. sounds kind of redundant, or I'm just failing to see the, uh, the reason or the motivation, perhaps. Well, I think it's basically that you just like, so interacting with this blockchain uh, from Urbit, all right, so interacting with, you know, the blockchain that people are thinking of building um, that runs on Urbit, interacting with that from Urbit should be a little bit more natural than interacting with some other chain, although it'll look very similar. I see. So basically, like, we already have um, applications in Urbit that can interact with the Bitcoin chain, with the Ethereum chain. Um, and uh, there's a fair amount of work that goes into that because... You, know, you have there are different data formats, uh, and so you have to translate between them. And okay. there are different sort of networking protocols, so you have to kind of do retries in various ways. I see. You so have that's a different stuff. security model, et cetera. So like you have to have all these sort of translation layers. Mm. Whereas if it were in Urbit, then presumably you wouldn't need any of those. It would all just be built to purpose for Urbit. Yeah, Urbit and, native, and it would just make a lot of other things, I guess, more convenient, more yeah, efficient, more seamless. Yeah. Okay, so interesting. I think that's the basic idea of why this would be nice. Right. Okay. So we're just. Closing up this conversation about uh, Urbit and blockchains, yep. you know, Anthony Royal once said to me that in a way, Urbit competes with Ethereum smart contracts. In a way, Urbit yeah. is kind of a smart contract it platform, is. which is a very interesting way to put it. Now, does that mean that we can imagine the the smart contract logic and the, the what it, what is so appealing about smart contracts is this idea of programming uh, arbitrarily complex kind of if then actions with moving of assets and data. Yeah. Is that something you would expect to see done natively within Urbit just through the the shared computing framework where like me and a bunch of my friends can kind of program some code that says, you know, if someone delivers X to this group, then they'll get sent X Satoshis. Yes. It, that's the kind of thing you would expect to be built natively within Urbit. Yeah. Although for most of those things, there's going to be a little bit of an on-chain component. Okay. So basically, uh, anything where you're actually owning an asset, mm -hmm. 
because you need to solve the double spend problem for that, that part of it at the very least needs to be on chain. Okay. For, now for something else, you know, if you're doing um, sort of a private group that's, that maybe, so let's say, let's take the example of a DAO, mm-hmm. right? Um, and let's say a DAO that's running a, something like a corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, you, do you need like every single decision that the company makes to be like, listed on chain and basically have that ordering right, and that yeah. sequence like guaranteed by a chain? Like, no, not usually. Do you need the ownership to be a secure and like subject to formal rules? Yes. Right. So um, which parts of those formal rules need to be on chain and which don't is going to vary a lot. But for sort of informal things where you have some degree of trust, you don't really need the on-chain stuff. And it's going to be a lot cheaper and faster to use Urban instead. Right. Uh, no. So it's only a little bit of competition because you know, most things that people are doing with Ethereum, I think like they're going to keep doing it with Ethereum. Um, and so Urban's not going to suck too much business away from it. Um, but there are a lot of just sort of more informal uh, you know, arrangements that people who are you know, working with DeFi and working with the sort of new crypto economy are you want to do, uh, including you know, management of on-chain assets and contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that stuff will happen from Urbit. So it's like the other way of thinking about this uh, sort of ecosystem is that you've got public blockchain sort of in the center. Uh, and then you have like many Urbits around it. And those Urbits are all like holding pointers, holding references into this public data. Mm-hmm. And so you have many private references to public data. This is, in fact, one of the big problems, in my understanding, right now with trying to use blockchains is that you have to manage your assets somewhere, right? You have to have it in MetaMask or Gnosis Safe or whatever. And, um, you know, that there isn't sort of like one coherent place where you're storing all that information. So you're like managing all your accounts, keeping it all secure and not losing it. Uh, right. And the um, so Urban is a really good way to do that because you can link all these different things together. You can build apps that that do this sort of if this, then that behavior, you can have those sync with other people, right. collaborate with other people, you know, collaborate on signing, for example, the multi-sig, um, you know, and so it can, it can automate and sort of organize a lot of these, um, like a lot of your interactions with a chain. Right. I think a lot of people in crypto still don't know that. And I think when yeah. like the word gets out about how much you can do on that front, I do think there, there's going to be a massive, sucking sound of, of crypto people coming into Urbit yeah. because of these affordances. And there already have been some. Sure. Because some people, I mean, uh, two years ago, Sarpin Laplux was telling you this. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's sort of become even more true since. Okay. Fascinating. So maybe we'll just close by talking about next steps for you, next steps for Urbit. I know a lot of people in crypto who are talking about potentially leaving the country, or I know a lot of people who have kind of backup plans, contingency plans, you know, mm-hmm. where they would go if Let's say there was a big, you know, uh, regulatory crackdown on crypto and you, I believe, are preparing to move to another country. Apparently, I yeah. I've, I've heard there is a urban click in Kiev. Is yep. that correct? That's yeah. kind of interesting. So tell us about why are you moving to Kiev and how did that kind of decision calculus? Is it a kind of geopolitical thing where you're kind of like you want to hedge against the United States or how do you think about it? A little bit, but mostly not. Mostly just quality of life. OK, uh, I went to Kiev the summer for a couple of months met up with a bunch of other urban people who were already there. And, and they're sort of, they're a little bit nomadic, some of them, um, uh, kind of going to different places as the, when we can. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, but mostly Kiev just turns out to be a really nice city mm. and it feels sort of, uh, like it's on the way up. Um, it's kind of like a ambitious, optimistic attitude from what I can tell. I was only there for two months so far, but, um, I'm excited. I've been kind of studying Russian for a while, just basically for fun. And, um, the, uh, so still learning Russian's exceedingly difficult language, yeah. out, but, um, the, uh, I really enjoyed being there and, uh, just good energy. Like, um, and I would say, you know, especially with the other urban people there. And so, uh, yeah, I'm going to be moving there, uh, keeping my American citizenship. Yeah. So it's not an irreversible decision. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to go live there for a while and I'll get a three year residency and. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, That's fascinating. Yeah. It sounds really cool. I think you're going to have a very fun time. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. And it's so, it's so funny to me that there's a urban click there. It's yeah. like, uh, yeah, I just never would have guessed that. <laughs> well, there are urban people all over the world. Sure. Sure. Uh, and. Yeah, I mean, Talon has, I don't know, like a third of its people that it works with are not in America. Right, of course. Not yeah. for regulatory reasons. It's just that people get interested in it wherever. It's just cool that there's becoming a hub that's kind of attracting new people to move there. And, yeah. Uh, it's I very cool. I don't think it's the last one. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. And what about for Urbit? I'm curious in particular, like, what is the next thing you're most excited about? Or maybe specifically with respect to the, to the apps and, and sure. the software distribution? Because this feels incredibly exciting and powerful to me. Do you think there's an app kind of coming up that's going to be like the killer app or it's going to be like the big flashy thing that's like really impressing outsiders and they're like, oh, I want to get on there because I want to use that app. What, what's your sense of like the the next important app that gets shipped through this software sharing service? Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to know, yeah. but I can I can name a few. Sure. So, and the way I predict this going is that it'll be sort of like a punctuated equilibrium where there's some growth, maybe some shrinking, whatever, some attrition until you know some new app lands or some new functionality lands and then there'll be a big spike up and okay. those will happen at some rate. And I don't know exactly which of those spikes are going to be big, but uh, yeah, I can name a few of them. So uh, one imminent one is um, a phone app. You can't get notifications on your phone mm. for Urbit right now. I mean, I run Urbit on my phone. Like I have a Urbit client on my phone, but it's it's just a, a browser thing. Uh, so I can't get notifications. So I'm still in a bunch of groups and Signal and Telegram and whatnot mm -hmm. um, because you need to get notified. So once we have an app for Urbit, like iOS app, Android app, um, where I can get notifications, a lot of those groups are going to move over. Um, the other, so I think that's a big deal. I think that'll drive adoption quite a bit. Um, because then it's basically, it's basically competing with signal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty comparable. I, mean, right. I, I think like telegram is a beautiful user experience. Like, I don't know how they did it, but they knocked it out of the park. Mm. Uh, so if we can get these sort of asymptotically closer to the telegram experience, right. we should do that. Okay. Um, but the, um, and we can, it's actually fairly close already. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, okay. So that's, that's one thing. The, um, the next is, uh, being able to do file sharing. Mm. So encrypted file sharing, just, you know, if I want to send you a video or audio file, something like that. Like a Google drive on Urbit. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but you know, peer to peer encrypted. Right. Um, I don't know how much that'll drive adoption, but some probably. Yeah. Uh, and then the next step is basically, uh, Content. So, you know, the replacement for Substack, Patreon, Twitch, right. these sorts of things. Uh, okay. And some of those are, those are two, there are two enabling technologies for this. One is WebRTC, which enables like real time communication that's negotiated by your Urbits and then it happens in the browser. Which is here, right? Yeah. It's basically. Yeah. There. So that landed. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's still a little shaky, I think, but it's out there. It's, you know, we're pushing out over the air updates to it. Do you get that through um, the software? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so like a bunch of people have done video calls on Urban now. Okay, cool. 
pretty exciting. I, I have to find yeah. the identifier to, to import it. It's uh, Urchat FM. Okay. And you search for that in the software distribution app? Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, would, I would ask around to see who's distributing it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then the, um, okay, so that's, yeah, so WebRTC is one component. And then there are basically oh, there are two other components. One is web publishing, so publishing to the Boomer web. Right. Um, and so the fundamental technology for that is there, but there isn't really much like user space facility for that. So there would be some apps for doing that, I think. Uh, okay. They're sort of bridge between like urban content and old world. Right. Um, and the second one there is payments. So fiat payments, Terrell is working on that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, three guys from Talon left from their own payments company called Terrell. They were on the podcast. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so that's fiat, fiat payments sort of like Stripe for Urbit. And then also there are people working on a lightning wallet. Mm. Um, and so uh, then you get, so when you combine those two things, right, people can pay for content. They can pay for multimedia content. So then you have podcasting apps, something to replace, you know, Gumroad, Patreon, et cetera. Right. Um, and so that's the next big stage. I imagine you're pretty excited yeah, for yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then beyond that, yeah, I think like, I think DeFi stuff. Uh, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, mm -hmm. but um, once it sort of becomes more convenient to use Urba to like collate your various accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can actually coordinate to do DeFi stuff through Urbit. I think it'll just, it'll just be a utility for those people. Hell yeah, dude, let's go. It's super oh, yeah. exciting, man. This was an awesome podcast. Thanks for giving us your time. And Thanks for having me. All, all of your really thoughtful and articulate perspectives on the relationship between Urbit and blockchain and scaling. This was awesome. I think a lot of people are really going to enjoy this. So thanks, Ted. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'll put links to things in the show notes and I'll also throw in your Urbit handle if people want to yeah. DM you or whatever. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, dude. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end. So you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really